And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Friday morning. Whew. It was a busy night in the NBA last night. There were all-stars. There was a trade. There was an implausible Lakers semi-blowout win of the Boston Celtics without Anthony Davis and LeBron James. Not sure how that happened. But the biggest news is sad news, and it's just my siren song team, the team I can't stop thinking about when I go to bed, when I'm driving. If I ever crash my car just into a tree or drive off the road, it's because I'm thinking about the last 10 years of the Philadelphia 76ers history and Joel Embiid, and nobody does, and I'm not implying anything nefarious here because I actually don't think there's anything untoward here. But nobody does vague injury updates like the Philadelphia 76ers of the last 10 years. And so Embiid has Jonathan Kaminga fall on his knee in Golden State after missing a couple of games against Denver and Portland. And the team announces last night that he has suffered a, a meniscus injury to his left knee. Something has happened to the meniscus in his left knee. Um, they pushed back very hard when it was called in some corners a tear. We don't exactly know what it is or the extent of it. And they are going to take the weekend to have people look at it, see what treatment options might be available. And we can talk about what the range of those might be and see what timetable makes sense for the guy who was the MVP front runner, despite the games missed thing. And we will talk about the games missed limit. Um, and having, I said this on this podcast a couple weeks ago and people yelled at me, maybe the greatest scoring season in the history of the NBA. And people said, what about Michael Jordan? What about Will Chamberlain? He averaged 50 points a game. He, he played more than 48 minutes per game in that season. Bottom line, Joel Embiid, just a majestic season, lording over the game from the free throw line, just shooting over guys with such ease that he was like just dropping the ball into the hoop. It looked like, even though he was 13 feet away, averaging 1.05 points per minute played. 1.05 points per minute played. Number one all time. Would have been bigger than any Will Chamberlain number. And the Sixers now have to figure out when that person can come back, what it does to their season, what it does to their trade deadline approach. But first they have to figure out what's going on with his knee. We can't know that. We haven't seen the data. But there's no one I want to talk to about this more than Jeff Stotts, who is an athletic trainer, has been running in street clothes for a long time is partners with another very smart person, Robbie Sika, at Smart. Uh, you can Google that. Uh, and is the best injury analyst that I know. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well. Of course, I'm the harbinger of doom. Anybody <laughs> that has to talk to me, something bad has happened. So I'm, I'm happy to be here, but I'm sad that we're having to talk about this injury. Well, and it's, it's on the one hand, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and, and this person told me, if you go back to the whatever draft he was picked in, 2014, I think, 15, something like that. And you told all the teams in the top three of that draft that Joel Embiid would have played exactly as many games to date in his career as he has and averaged the exact amount of games that he has over the last four or five seasons when he's been healthy. He would have been picked number one. That's how red the red flags on his injury stuff was going into the draft and how sort of Happily, his career has turned out in the big picture, big, big, big picture. But in the small picture or the medium picture, it's just such a bummer that every time this guy has momentum going for him, something seems to happen. So I want you to take us through first the history of injuries to this particular knee, because this is the same knee 
I believe he's had a meniscus surgery on this knee before. He's had a bone bruise on this knee before. So can you please just educate us on like what all of this means? What has happened? Okay, so it's it's a little bit of a complex injury. Uh, part of it is because of the injury itself, and then part of it is trying to decode, like you said, what we know about the injury. So let's let's focus on what we do know, not what we don't know, and that is it's a left knee injury. So we can start looking at previous injuries for what he has. Like you said, he did have a previous meniscus tear in this injury or in this knee. He had surgery. It was to the lateral meniscus as well. So we know it's the same area that is involved. He's also had a meniscus tear on the opposite knee, but we can uh, ignore that for right now. Um, this is also the opposite where he had that LCL sprain a couple years back. So again, this knee, the primary concern has been the meniscus injuries. Uh, he, he did miss some time in January, five games. Uh, they originally called it knee inflammation. They called it knee soreness. And then he, he suffered the injury when Kaminga fell on him. Now, it might not have been that he suffered the injury when Kaminga fell on him. This could have been something that was pre-existing, that that was what was causing inflammation. That was what was causing him soreness. Or it could have just been there and it had been asymptomatic. But once they did this MRI, something showed up on the MRI. Now, it could potentially be a meniscus contusion. I don't have... I can't recall any real cases to compare that to. Can, Most can, you, can, time, you, can you explain what that is? Yeah, so it, the, it's like a bruise, right? We, we use the word contusion and bruise a lot. Basically what happens is the integrity of the meniscus is intact. There is no true tearing of the cartilage. So the, the meniscus is, is a cartilage, uh, a, a, a disc in your knee that is a shock absorber, and that's its primary purpose. Um, the positioning of it is what makes it so vulnerable to injuries, especially this lateral meniscus. So maybe what happened is you're seeing something on the MRI in terms of, of, of shadows or imaging or, or whatever the case may be that has indicated there's an injury going on, but it's not a true tear. And that's what I think they're still exploring. And, and that's really important because if it's not a tear, conservative treatment could be utilized here. Can he get an injection? Can he can he shut down, rest for a little while, and then let's see how it responds to this, you know, basic. Let, let me that let me ask fun. let me ask you a dumb question. So so you just pointed out something very important. When I said I don't think there's anything untoward here, what I meant was I think they're totally genuine and that like we're trying to figure out what the hell's going on here and what we can do. And included in that, I think, might be a scenario exactly like you're talking about. Like, what's the pain tolerance level going to be going forward if we get them some rest for a sh maybe a short period of time? Maybe it's not even that long versus other scenarios that are longer and more dire for their immediate prospects in the season. You said injection. Injection of what and where and what are you talking about? It would just depend if they want to do like a PRP injection. Um, he's, he's previously done that to, to help with stimulate the healing process. Basically, you're trying to create an environment more conducive to healing with the, with those kinds of injections. Uh, it doesn't necessarily speed things up, but it does create a, a more favorable environment. Uh, and, and I do I do think if it had been a outright tear, I think we would have already known what their treatment plans were. They would come out and say, okay, because that's the thing with meniscus is it's it's a lot like real estate. It's location, 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 and then it's also the pattern of which the injury occurred. And if it was a tear in a very specific location. We knew we, we would know we would have to have surgery. There's no kind of, okay, let's talk this out. It's okay. He's got a bucket handle tear where the cartilage folds over. We've got to address that surgically. They, they haven't done that yet. So I think there's still some things to, to sort through or just to figure out. And I think that's ultimately going to be that that is going to dictate how long he is out because everybody always says to me, we talk meniscus. Well, why do they even take it out? I don't understand why you take it out. I mean, you've heard guys like Dwayne Wade talk about how I wish I hadn't had 
you know, a, a meniscectomy where they, they take out that meniscus. He had that in, co- in college, correct? Correct. And, and it wasn't that they just, they don't take out the whole disc. They take out the, the damaged part. And a lot of times it's small. That's what they did with Embiid in his last lateral meniscus uh, surgery is he had a meniscectomy. They take out a small piece of it. But again, if you have multiple injuries and they start to take up, yes, obviously it can be problematic as you take more of that cartilage out. But a repair, a true repair where they, they keep and maintain the integrity of the meniscus can only occur with a specific tear in a specific location. So sometimes there's no choice. It is a sympt- it is a symptomatic tear that has to be taken out. It's a lot like having a rock in your shoe. You get that rock taken out, you feel fine. If it lingers and stays in there, it causes problems. So it really is going to be dictated on what they determine they can do with the exact injury. And again, we don't know if it's a tear, even though I would suspect it likely is, even if it's a small tear. Um, you mentioned the snipping versus the stitching back together and how you can only do the stitching part in specific circumstances that may not apply here. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but the the the, the sort of layman explanation to me has always been the recovery period, because for better or worse, people are going to be wondering when he can get back on the floor. And we don't, it could, it, we don't even know what the treatment plan is going to be. But if it is one of those things, we don't know that, to be clear. I don't even know anything. Um, the layman's explanation has always been the snip is always a much quicker recovery period than the mend. Is that always true no matter what, where you're snipping and where you're mending? And what are the respective timetables, just so people know? Generally speaking, when we talk about a snip or a removal, we're talking about four to six weeks in, in a lot of cases. So weeks, not months. Repairs, now we're talking months instead of weeks. And now, and is that weeks before you can play basketball or weeks before you can like start walking and jogging? We've, we've had some people come back relatively quickly. I remember uh, Meta World Peace came back relatively quickly um, from, from a meniscectomy, but he also had some lingering issues. I, I think it's likely going to be a slow ramp up for him, regardless of when it is, based on his previous history. And, and you know, look, look, they've got to play the long game here, too. You know, he's got a lot of red flags in his his injury history now, and they've got to do everything they can to minimize and mitigate his long-term injury risk. And what about the um, the mending? That that's a that's months, correct? His season would likely be over if they tr- decide a true repair is needed because you have to be non weight bearing for an extended period of time after the injury has occurred or after the surgery has been carried out, and so it would be an extensive, uh, prolonged absence if that was the case. Well, and look, the number one concern here is that this is a giant of the game having his most giant season ever for a team that finally, after endless dramas across the organization, and we don't need to, from, from GMs to number one picks who forgot how to shoot, plural, to trades, to holdouts, or whatever you want to call the Simmons thing, to the iPhone and the sweatpants pocket at practice, all of it, finally had found another building block that had the right vibe with Embiid and Tyrese Maxey, who, by the way, had 51 points last night in a win in Utah that the Sixers really needed, and was, is, is currently a title contender with ammunition to make trades that they acquired in the James Harden deal and a hunger, I think, to some degree at least, to upgrade this roster to make a real run at it this year, maybe while preserving their cap space for this summer, if they conclude for whatever reason that their chances are now taking a hit this year, whether it's a big hit, a small hit, a medium-sized hit, we will not know until probably earliest next week. 
I think that probably does change their calculus at the trade deadline and make them sort of prioritize the cap space in the offseason more than winning right now, 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 which sucks because I want to see everybody try to win now, 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 and this team can do it. Bigger picture, they're now fifth in the East. And I'm going to talk about with Chris Herring in a second and talked about earlier this week. We have this race now between Milwaukee, the Knicks, the Cavs, and the Sixers who are all jumbled up for number two, three, four, and five. And that's massively important for home court, who you play in the first round, avoiding Boston in the second round. If you care about avoiding Boston in the second round, they haven't been playing quite as well of late. We will get to that. This impacts everything on an emotional level, on a basketball level, on a cold-hearted trade deadline level, and it just sucks because this guy is an absolute giant of the sport in every possible way, and it just stinks. I wanted to ask you while we're here, you know, I don't recall a lot of people being mad about the 65-game limit for MVP consideration and All-NBA consideration and things like that from a player health perspective until the moment that Joel Embiid got hurt. And then everybody got mad about it. Um, But this is the world you live in. Player health, player safety. Your brain goes to this issue faster than than my brain even would go to this issue. When you heard about the 65-game limit, did you think about scenarios where players might feel pushed to play at the expense of their long-term, medium-term, whatever health? Yeah, it's... it's, Load management and rest and all the, game, the the games played and all the things is, is extremely frustrating for me because, again, my focus is player health. And we the pendulum was one way. We used to praise teams like San Antonio for how fresh the Spurs looked in the postseason because they managed their veterans well and they utilized rest smartly. And then it kind of swung the other way when people started maybe taking advantage or using it to fuel – the process in terms of injuries and things like that. And, and we've kind of overreacted, I, I think, in terms of what that means, because at the end of the day, you're trying to balance multiple factors, whether it's fans, players, teams, all these things. And the key needs to remain the player health and putting a cap on what that means is you are going to potentially have a guy, Hey, I'm going to go out there and play on something that's, that's hurting and increase my risk. Cause that's what I'm, my focus is always on is risk mitigation, risk management. And if I'm telling a guy, Hey, you got to get two more games to get played, but you are high risk in these situations. What, what are we doing here? Right. Like, like, and again, at the end of the day, I'm like you, I'm a big basketball fan and I'm really upset that Joel Embiid is, is going to miss time. And could it have avoided? I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the reason why he got hurt, but it is definitely frustrating and something that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. I want to hear Joel talk before I leap to any conclusions either way and get angry either way because truthfully I'm not that up in arms about it for this for this reason Joel has already gotten every supermax possible other than maybe some clauses in his contract that at his wealth level don't move the needle all that much the the incentive to play the 65 games is much less financially relevant to him than it is to someone like Tyrese Halliburton who's missed I think 13 games and has a very good chance if not a lock to make an all-NBA team which bumps up his contract significantly we'll talk about that situation in a second so that financial incentive for Embiid is not there number two I'm not sure in a totally cold rational world which I realize we do not live in and a player cannot live in when um 
things like awards and stakes and toughness and all these things are being thrown around in the media, I'm not sure the 65-game limit should have made him any more likely to play that game in Golden State than he would have been in the exact equivalent game with the exact equivalent games missed last season. Because history suggests, absent the 65-game rule, voters already take this stuff into account when voting for MVP. And he was already at the like essentially the second lowest figure of games played out of total possible games, because remember, we've had a lot of shortened seasons over the years. To ever win MVP alongside Bill Walton, who played 58 games in 1978 and won. And so cognitively, rule or not, he would have known, okay, like I'm about at that level where I'm going to fall out of the MVP race one way or another. Now, I say that and and, and I, I understand that the rule is a, a something that just gets in your head. It's cold. It's hard. The players union agreed to it. Teams agreed to it. Coaches agreed to it. All of the everyone agreed to it. The league definitely kind of like shoved it down people's throats to some degree, but everyone agreed to it. Um, and and if it sticks in your head, it probably does change the way you think. I, I just am not sure I'm ready to blame the rule for pushing guys to play in it, pushing Embiid to play, pushing Embiid to play. And by the way, Halliburton is playing 20 minutes a game on a on a medical recommended minutes restriction right now for the Pacers. I don't really think. I'm not sure that the I'm sure the player participation policy has been brought up in these discussions, but I think this is a legit medical decision and they're probably going to ramp up that number pretty soon. So let's leave that aside. I just don't know if I can blame the rule for like, well, that forced Joel Embiid to play because he's trying to get MVP when already the games played issue was an issue in MVP voting anyway. I will also say it's it's convenient for fans and media to blame that. When just as easily, they themselves could be to blame for jumping all over the, oh, he's ducking Nikola Jokic in Denver again. Why is he always ducking Jokic in Denver? Oh, he's afraid of Jokic. He doesn't want to play Jokic. I never said that. I said I would love to see him play Nikola Jokic, but I'm not going to sit here and tell. And I said after he missed the Portland game, this is why you won't hear me say that guys are ducking guys and this and that. Like Joel Embiid knows how ready to play he is. And like players hear that stuff too. Like, and, and maybe that impacted, like, I got to give this a go. It's another national TV game. I can't remember if it was or not. Um, uh, you know, so I don't really know what happened here, but I just want to hear him talk. If he comes out and says the 65 game limit is why I played, that will change the way I think about it. But for now, I'm, I'm, I just, I can't get that emphatically mad about it. Which which I think is fair because so much of what we do is should be based on the subjective nature from the player, right? How is the player feeling? What how comfortable are they? If at the end of the day they say I'm not ready to go, you should listen to that. You know, nothing drives me crazier than when a coach comes out and says, "Oh well, if it had been the playoffs, he would be playing." Well, that means your return to play protocol varies based on the severity of of, of the game, and, it, and for most purpose places, it probably shouldn't. Right. It should always be, hey, if you can meet these markers, you're going to play. If you can't, you're not. All right. Jeff Stotts, any parting thoughts you want to get in on Embiid before we let you go back to your actual life? No, I'm just, you know, I've, I'm sad that he's he's hurt. You know, I've, I've got a buddy who's a, a diehard Sixers fan. And he was very much in his feelings last night trying to trying to, you know, process through this whole thing. And I was trying to tell him, hey, wait for more information, because I think that's where we are.
be patient, cross your fingers, hopefully it'll work out. And if you want to learn about this stuff, follow Jeff Stotts in Street Clothes on Twitter. Read his stuff in Street Clothes, the blog, the website, whatever. Um, you will learn. You will be smarter. And he explains it in terms that regular dopes like me can understand. Jeff Stotts, essential resource. Thank you for your time. Appreciate you. All right. Let's pivot and bring in the one and only Chris Herring. Now from ESPN.com, Beard is looking fantastic this morning, we were going to go through our most interesting trade teams, and we are going to do that. But I said, we're all going to pick our five most interesting trade teams, and I'm going to make you pick the Knicks so that we have to talk about your New York Knicks that we have a great piece on coming up on ESPN.com. How are you, sir? I'm doing okay, Zach. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Before we get there, you and I were having a fun discussion about what games we should watch last night in preparation for this podcast. And once Anthony Davis and LeBron announced that they were sitting out, we were like, oh, I'm going to pivot to other games. I'll definitely watch Knicks Pacers, and I'll probably watch the Cavs because the Cavs have got Darius Garland back. And then I looked at the score. I was like, oh, my God. I got to watch Lakers-Celtics. The Celtics lost to the Lakers without Anthony Davis and LeBron James. And, boy, were the Lakers flying, running off rebounds getting 15 offensive rebounds, forcing turnovers. The Celtics helped with a lot of, of live ball turnovers that the Lakers ran off of. Just flat out work to Celtics to the point that Joe Missoula, after Jackson Hayes played volleyball, just three Celtics watching him play volleyball on the offensive glass in the third quarter, took all three of those dudes out of the game. Drew Holiday, Jalen Brown, Kristaps Porzingis, you're going to the bench. We're coming back with some backup players who want to play harder. Um, the context of this, Chris, speaking of the trade deadline, is that the Lakers are now 500. LeBron James, in just almost as if he were playing the character of LeBron James in a movie, tweets <laughs> an emoji of an hourglass ticking yeah. with the sands of time, ticking away after a disastrous loss to the disastrous Atlanta Hawks. And just like, yeah, just I'm just going to leave that out there and not do any media for three days. Everyone, oh, everyone parse what that means. Um, what it means is, there's pressure on the Lakers to do something. And I'll tell you this, Chris. I was so alarmed by the hourglass emoji, like Charlie Brown with the freaking football, that I circled the wagons and and sniffed around like, he's not going to ask for a trade in the next week, is he? Like, that's not a thing that's going to happen. And I was told, yeah, you can probably stick that one in your back pocket. That's, that's, that's extremely unlikely to the point of impossible. Not impossible, but not going to happen. I said, okay, phew, okay, because that would be <laughs> an earthquake. Um, but I think there will be immense pressure on the Lakers from from lots of places to do something ahead of the trade deadline. DeJounte Murray has been the name that has been most bandied about. I, I don't think they were ever super interested in Zach Levine. Uh, that contract is just, it's a big contract. He's hurt again. I think the Detroit Zach Levine noise is real and that if the Pistons do that, Bulls fans need to be prepared for a return that will underwhelm them. But we'll see. What happens? And I, it's been reported elsewhere that there's been talks about Murray, a three-team trade with Murray going to the Lakers, D'Angelo Russell going to the Nets, Spencer Dinwiddie and the Lakers 2029 first-round pick going to the Hawks. It's been interesting, Chris Herring, amid all these trade rumors, to watch a lot of these guys that have been thrown into the trade machine like D'Angelo Russell, who is in the midst of the best stretch of his life, period. Austin Reeves, 50, 60-something points in the last two games, I think, 
for the Lakers. I don't think the Lakers ever wanted to trade Austin Reeves, period. I think they viewed all that stuff as a lateral move, no matter who they're getting back almost. Um, they're balling out. What did you see from the Lakers last night? And I don't know. What did you think of the hourglass? What do you think? What, what do you think of this team right now? I think it was extremely, extremely interesting timing for this team to step up and specifically with AD and LeBron in street clothes on the bench, cheering them on. By the way, bundled up. Was it 45 degrees in the arena last night? My God. (laughs) Take a couple of layers off. They looked like Adrian Brody's character in Succession. I don't know if you watched that show. He had like 19 (laughs) layers on for a walk around the Hamptons. My God. Take the hood off. Yeah, So... I mean, it was, I mean, you can't get around the fact that it's pretty interesting to watch. And I, you know, it was funny. You and I were texting during the game for whatever reason. I don't know that it was that you and I had discussed beforehand that we were probably going to talk off that game. And then I literally texted you and said, are we off Lakers Celtics now? Because, (laughs) you know, nobody, not nobody, the two most meaningful guys from the Lakers aren't playing. And for some reason, I think just because I had wrapped my mind around the idea that I was going to watch that game. I still started with that game and you know, I I essentially told myself I'll keep watching this until the Lakers are out of it. And that never happened. I mean, it was more kind of like when are the Celtics going to get in it? And I don't think that they got it any closer than something like eight or nine points in the fourth uh, to the point where, you know, at times it looked like Missoula almost should have just pulled his starters and let the bench just keep doing their thing. Really? Uh, the starters just looked like they didn't have it. But I think a function of that was that the Lakers were playing extremely hard. And it was, you know, it's been a team all year that really Austin Reeves, um, as solid a player as he is, as, as good a third player as he is for this team, has not, the, the team has not done well enough when it's just him on the court without AD and LeBron. And so this was obviously the tables turning and the Lakers playing extremely hard. You know, you never know exactly how much it's motivating guys who know and are hearing that they're on the trade block, that there's the possibility that they might be moved, that the Lakers are waiting to see what happens to figure out what moves they should make. You don't know how much of a fire that lights under guys, but, and also the the flip side of whether it makes guys more flimsy. We obviously remember right before LeBron was um, there that the, you know, that the Lakers uh, struggled quite a bit or when they were talking about the trade for Davis the year before it actually happened, just that those guys kind of nosedived uh, or actually not that they nosedived, but that the team did. And then a lot of the young guys actually played pretty decently, but you never know how that can impact a team. And uh, it was extremely interesting to watch them go into an arena that not many teams have won in this year and, and play their butts off. Austin Reeves looked fantastic. Like you said, it, it's probably been kind of, over speculated that he might be moved. It, it seemed unlikely all the time, but uh, he looked fantastic. One of the best outings I've seen him have period uh, not to mention D'Angelo Russell and just the other guys that were out there playing really well. So it was good to see that from them, but uh, on some level you would really, really hope that it doesn't change the calculus of the Lakers need to do something because it is still just one game out of the 82 with the roster that we've seen just be way too inconsistent if, if you're even willing to say that the the certain rotations obviously have been very consistent in a bad way for this team. So you would still imagine that something needs to be done and that, you know, that paired along with the, the hourglass emoji tweet, you know, I feel yeah, like we get like we at just... least one or two annual tweets from LeBron where we're like, what does he mean by this? 
Uh, I mean, like, look, a lot of people remember the 2018 trade deadline, which was LeBron's last year with the Cavaliers, when he spent the entire month leading up to the trade deadline rolling his eyes on the court at every mistake everybody made and just sending every possible passive-aggressive signal that the front office should trade everybody, which they did. And they made the finals and they got swept and J.R. Smith forgot what the score was and all that stuff happened. And we've seen this movie many times before. You just would like, like, can you just like, I, I don't know, can you not be so cryptic about it? But anyway, here's where the, the question is, what? What actually changes the Lakers season and at what cost? So here's where the Lakers are. They're 25 and 25. Pfft. They're mediocre on both ends. They're bad on offense, mediocre on defense. Um, top six is going to be very hard for them to crack with 30-something games left. 32 games. They've played 50 games. Um, they're five games out of sixth. Sacramento is winning sometimes by the skin of their teeth. Phoenix is winning emphatically with their big three, although not as consistently as you like. Top six is going to be tough. There's a three-game gap between seven and eight which is Pelicans and Mavericks, and 9 and 10, which is, which is Lakers and Jazz, and almost no gap between 9, 10, 11, and 12, Houston and Golden State. That's a four-team race to get into the last two playoff spots. The Lakers' immediate goal should be to get into 7 and 8, to like to accept this is likely going to be a play-in team. I don't see a massive run like last season coming, in which they only got into the play-in anyway. Can you at least get into the upper bracket where you have two shots to win one game instead of the other way around where things get kind of dire? On DeJounte Murray, you know, it it is just one game, as you said, but it's not just one game for Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell. They're playing better, and Reeves is up to 36% on threes, and if he could just sustain that level, he's a different player. D'Angelo Russell, he might be the only guy in the NBA. I don't know who you talk to and what you hear. This dude could score 30 points a game for like two months and people would be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Just, I don't yeah. know if I want that guy on my team. <laughs> it's like, I'm bleak. He can't do anything right. He's, he could score 30 points every game. Eh, I don't know. And the Can question we be is, honest about why that is, though? Because I sure, think go ahead. the way that you talk about LeBron with his cryptic tweets, and it, it's like maybe this is the contrast. LeBron's cryptic about what he's saying, what he's thinking. D'Angelo Russell will just straight up tell you, like, essentially, I don't get paid for that. You know, and it's it's like kind of this this odious, like nobody wants to willingly take on a guy that is telling you defense is kind of a secondary tertiary responsibility. It's the truth, like in terms of the way he thinks about it, but it it doesn't speak to championship DNA necessarily of the sort of player that hmm, if I add this guy to my roster, this is going to be what puts me over the top. Uh, for certain teams. And I know that that's what it is. I know that's the way I would think about it if I was an executive, if I was a fan, quite frankly. So that's what I think it is. But also we know he's hot cold, that he is the guy that turns the ball over three times in a row before he has the the balls to take and then make a, a game-winning shot, essentially. So I think that's what it is. Um, All fair. He's never been my cup of tea. And yes, the proclamations are unwelcome. Not quite as unwelcome as DeAndre Ayton. I believe he said this to to Mark Medina, my friend, saying, I'm a max player and I'll continue to be a max player. And then he has nothing left <laughs> to prove. Hey, you, okay, technically, te- technically, um, you are averaging 12 points a game for the Portland Trailblazers who stink. 
and you visit the free throw line about as often as I visit Europe. So, like, maybe dial it back on the rhetoric a little bit, DeAndre. Now, D'Angelo uh, Russell, in fairness, Chris, is sh- he shot 5 of 20 last night, but he had 14 assists. He's making shots mm-hmm. for a team that desperately needs somebody to make yes. shots. He's making shots out of the pick and roll for a team that desperately needs somebody other than LeBron to do something out of the pick and roll because LeBron is almost 40 years old. Um, And I think the question that the Lakers have to ask themselves is, DeJounte Murray is better than D'Angelo Russell. He's a better fit for their team. He has just a north-south dynamism, an oomph that they just do not have and D'Angelo Russell definitely does not have. He is better defensively than D'Angelo Russell by a lot, even in this diminished state where he's not Mm -hmm. really buying in with Atlanta. And you hope that you get him back to a winning context where he's happier or whatever. And all of a sudden, DeJounte Murray, I don't know if he was ever an all-defense level player, but good guard defender reemerges. The question is, is the difference between that player and D'Angelo Russell worth an unprotected 2029 first-round pick or 2030 first-round pick. Remember, it's not like the Lakers have to trade it unprotected. They did great work last year. Now, they should have probably just got Mike Conley instead of D'Angelo Russell, but um, Mm. they did great work last year trading Utah a top-four protected first-round pick. Heavy protection that immediately rolls over so that it, into seconds if it doesn't convey so that the Lakers don't impact their trade flexibility going forward. So maybe that's where the negotiations are kind of stuck-ish if they're even negotiating right now. But I think that's – he's Tilo has at least made that an interesting question. Is, is he that much worse than DeJounte Murray to put that pick in? Um, LeBron doesn't care about that pick. LeBron doesn't care that if they don't trade that pick, they have three to trade in the summer where they could get – I mean, the names people are throwing around are a little much, but that's that's a powerful bag of stuff to trade. I just think that's um, that's an interesting question. I, I did like. I just want more Rui Hachimura in my life in general. I don't think Darvin yeah. Ham has played him enough this year. Um, I like I like the fact that we saw that last night. And look, only one game they hit nineteen threes. They're, they don't hit nineteen threes in two games sometimes, and the Celtics couldn't shoot <laughs> any threes. But I just don't know, like. Is there just is there another like what other trade? I don't know if that trade is changing the Lakers' life as a team this season and putting them into a different class of teams. And if it's not that one, like I just don't know that I've heard a trade that's doing that. Like I don't have you. I mean, is there a name that's been out there that you're like, oh, if the Lakers get that guy, that's a game changer. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at the list of names I've got here on the sheet. It, it also might be fundamentally something where. Sometimes I think we just get so stuck in hearing certain names connected with certain teams that that's all we really think about. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that last year I felt like there was like a blinking red, green, whatever color light. Conley just felt like he would have been a perfect fit for them in part because, yes, you love D'Angelo Russell's pick and roll game, his shooting ability when he's making the shots, when he's consistent what you hate about his game relative to someone like Conley is the fact that Conley's more sure-handed, that Conley's a veteran, that Conley's not going to most of the time lose games for you. And with the team where LeBron is controlling the ball, and when you actually have AD healthy, which has been the case this year for the most part, you don't want 
you, you want the game to be won and lost by those two. Uh, if if they have an off night, if they're hurt, if they get banged up, that's why you're losing. You don't want it to be – it can be a role player every now and then, but you don't want it to be consistently. And I, I just kind of feel like if you were to guess between Conley and, and Russell, who would be responsible for, man, this really shot us in the foot? It's going to be Russell eight, nine times out of ten between him and Conley. So I'm not sure. Like looking at the list – the jazz guys are interesting. Some of these guys have played for, you know, as we're talking about Dinwiddie and other guys, some of these guys have played for the teams that would be involved in trades that, you know, that deal them back to where they went before Clarkson, I think would be someone that would be interesting uh, for them. I, I, I think that there's a few names like that, that you just need someone that can do enough of what Russell does, but maybe isn't quite as mistake prone or isn't quite as inconsistent. And Clarkson, Although that's been him over his career at times, I feel like he's gotten a little bit more consistent with Utah. Um, you know, Tyus Jones is another guy, but I, I feel like there's sometimes a size issue there too. So I don't know. I'm not sure. None of these guys are changing the Lakers' life. Just, just like if if the goal is conference finals, championship contention mm-hmm. again, it just may, like look. LeBron has proved people wrong his entire life. He's he proved people wrong last year when this team. made a legit conference finals run now against a Memphis team that was Mm. broken injury wise and got more broken injury wise during the series. And the Warriors are, you know, they found something for a little bit and, and then flamed out. The West is just different this year. It's just different. The top of the West is better. Those four teams at the top of the West, you can tell me Minnesota and Oklahoma city for different reasons are vulnerable to upsets in the playoffs. And I buy that Minnesota's offenses and Oklahoma city's inexperienced. We'll see what they do with the trade deadline. They're still freaking awesome, and the Lakers are not freaking awesome. And I just don't know if there's a deal that puts them in a position where... And by the way, last year, to your point, there were a lot of ifs that the Lakers could flip in a positive way. Notably, like, if we can turn Russell Westbrook into something that makes sense for our team, and they did. Yes. I don't know that there's a a, a big or multiple big ifs that can flip their way. Notably, like one thing they could always if last year and years before is like if we can just get healthy at the right time. Well, they've been healthy more or less yeah. the whole year. Um, so, and, and I and I do think Rob Polinka has to ask, like, am I going to expend those assets to save a season that is unsavable if the standard of saving it is can we be a championship contender, which is the standard LeBron lives by and and you know he does have an opt-out after the season that's the other thing that nobody wants to talk about i don't know what the hell um to say about that but it just it exists as brian windhorse pointed out last week it exists i mentioned the bulls by the way just in passing you're you're a bulls guy why don't we just hit them you've spent a lot of time in chicago talked about levine I just keep hearing from teams all over the league. Everybody wants Caruso. So many teams want Caruso or at right. least want to engage the Bulls on Caruso. They keep telling me the Bulls aren't trading Caruso. They want to stay in the play-in race. They want to stay where they are. They're telling us they don't want to trade Caruso. They're 23 and 26. They are becoming team play-in, unfortunately. They're becoming a kind of a play-in poster team. Like just You can print the play-in posters a year in advance and have like DeMar DeRozan's <laughs> face on them. Um, wow. And like it's not it, wrong, by the way, but wow. But like, are they really just gonna do this? And what does that mean for DeRozan, who I keep saying is like an unrestricted free agent? Like, I keep hearing the Bulls yeah. want to trade Levine. Their ideal world is trade Levine, 
get our salary sheet in order, get what we can get for him, stay where we are. And yeah, they can do that. Kobe White's playing great. Desunu's playing great. You know, he's averaging 16 a game over the last 10 or 15 games. They can do that. It's like trading Zach Levine is clearly not going to torpedo their team. But what does that mean for DeRosa? I don't know. Have you heard anything Bulls related? Or is this just the same movie we've watched four times already? It feels that way to me. And and on some level, I feel like Levine getting hurt a second time in some ways made it more difficult. Uh, I, I don't, it's so weird, by the way, to like with so many of these teams, we're talking about the Lakers. Um, you know, I, I was at a Knicks game recently where uh, Evan Fournier, Evan Fournier, of all people, got a chance to play. And it's like this idea of dusting off something and, you know, limited time only like we got it you know here here it is and a showcase essentially Levine coming back from the first injury in some ways served as a runway and an opportunity for him to kind of showcase what he could do because keep in mind the Bulls went on a nice run Kobe White playing the best ball of his career for a while Patrick Williams playing some of the best ball of his career right after Levine got hurt and so it's like okay well that it's great for the Bulls on the one hand that they're winning games, but on the other, it would feel like it's bottoming out Levine's value because it's like, man, this guy is certainly talented, is certainly skilled, but is he a powder on some level? And is he a guy that is just so disengaged defensively that when he decides he can't play or when he can't play, um, that the Bulls take off because of it? And so him getting back in the rotation showing that he can score the way we all know he can. Maybe it rehabs it a little bit, but then he gets hurt again. And it's so you you lose that opportunity to even kind of have him rehab his value a little bit. Uh, the Bulls are just in such a weird spot. And I think what's so frustrating about it from the standpoint of them being a team that could potentially get out of this middle ground that they're in and kind of stuck in, you have to change something to do that, right? If it is moving off of Levine, cutting your losses there to some extent, so you can at least make plans to move forward some other way, moving off of him would allow you to do that. But this is a team that last year did not make, at least last year, Toronto traded for Pirtle. Not to say that it was the right move. It was all they did. But I, I thought it was interesting to kind of compare those two teams last year because they both seemed like they should have been doing something. Toronto did something. They did something in the direction that went opposite of what I would have done, but they did something. The Bulls, on the other hand, might have been the most talked about team last year at the deadline, if not one of the two or three most talked about because they had Levine, they had Caruso. They they have tradable pieces. They had DeRozan and did nothing. And now are at another trade deadline where it's feasible that they could end up doing largely nothing with the same cast of guys, despite us knowing that there's actual demand for some of these guys out there. Certainly Caruso. And, and my question, I think everybody in the league loves Alex Caruso. It, it is literally the polar opposite of everybody hates Chris. Everybody loves Alex Caruso. So that was the case last year. It's the case now. You would imagine it'll continue to be the case because he's on a good contract. He plays extremely hard. He would fit any team that needs a defensive wing. He can handle the ball a little bit. He can spot up. He's a good veteran player. He's a championship caliber player. 
but he's not winning you a championship if you're the Bulls, and you've had a couple years now to see that. So what is the point in holding on to him? I, I'm not even sure what the point of holding on to Levine is if it's going to hamstring you from feeling like you can do anything else because you're just stuck in this place. So I think that they absolutely need to do something. I thought they needed to do something last year, if not the year before that. I, I just don't understand what the end game is here and how you unstick yourself at some point if you don't move anybody. And I, I just don't understand the idea of having an asking price that is known to be too high or just saying, no matter what you're offering us, we're not going to move off of Russo. He's a great player for his role, but he's not winning you anything. And you badly could use some assets to just do something. Well, anything and other than what you're doing. Caruso is also looking at the basket this year. And I don't mean that facetiously. He's playing much better on offense, shooting well from yeah. three. And that, that makes him a better player. And to the Bulls' credit, like Dale and Terry has showed some stuff recently. Julian Phillips has shown some stuff recently. They're interesting players. But Patrick Williams is just kind of eh. Even though he was playing better, it wasn't like he was averaging 20 a game and like blowing no. up like Kaminga is right now in Golden State. Um, it, like, it's just, they, we'll see how those young guys play. But it's not like Chicago has a youth movement that's going to take them to the stars in the next five years. It doesn't appear. And look... DeRozan, like, they re-signed Vucevic to this three-year $60 million extension last summer. Fine. Like, it's an okay deal. It's fine. Like, Vuce hasn't played particularly well this year. He hasn't shot well from three. He's talked a lot about his struggles there. But it's fine. Like, but it's not like you're turning around, even at a deal that pays him, <clears throat> let's say, average starting center money, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. I don't know. It's not like you're turning around and trading him for like a bonanza of stuff on that contract, you're going to break sure. even trade trade asset wise. And I understood that with him. <clears throat> I worry like they missed the window to trade DeRozan last season. They missed the window to trade DeRozan in the summer. DeRozan's contract is ticking to expiration. Now there has been no contract extension. He's 34 years old. He will want more money than Nikola Vucevic got. If he re-signs for three years at more money than Nikola Vucevic got, you've, I just don't think you're trading him for anything other than like breaking even. What are we doing? That's enough. Can we talk about the Celtics real fast? I'm going to talk about the Celtics real fast before we transition to the Knicks. Yeah. You know, I didn't like that game for the Celtics last night, obviously. Didn't like the way they played squeaking by Indiana with Halliburton on a minutes restriction the game before. Didn't see the New Orleans game where they had to rally to beat the Pelicans. They were shellacked at home by the Clippers in a showcase game where the Clippers just came out and punched them in the mouth and the Celtics didn't have an answer. Unbelievable win for the Clippers. Yeah, they blew out Miami and they blew out uh, Dallas. They didn't blow out Dallas. They, they beat Dallas by nine. Fine. Beat Houston by nine. Fine. Lost to Denver in a showcase game by two. Tough game. Offense kind of got in mud late, but I, I didn't really feel perturbed about their late game offense in that game the way I have in other games. That was just a good game between two really good teams. Um we 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 know about the blowout of Milwaukee on the road before a couple games before that when Missoula pulled the starters. All of which is to say as someone who picked Boston to win the title before the season mm -hmm. and has generally been happy with how they've played they're starting to sh to uh, leak oil is a little strong. They're starting to wobble a little bit and have put together some performances that have made me be like, hmm. Um, they're eleven and six. At, they started the season twenty six and six. They're now eleven and six since then. When they were twenty six and six, they averaged one hundred and twenty one points per hundred per hundred possessions on offense. That was number two. One hundred and ten points allowed. That was number two. In the eleven and six stretch, 
They're down to 119, which doesn't sound like a big drop-off. It's just two points, but offense trends up over the season. And we've seen this movie with Boston before. That's ninth in that span. 112 points allowed, that's fifth. Their net rating has dropped from 10.4 plus to plus 6.8, which is the difference between great and just good. They're like fifth in in, in net rating in the 11 and 6 stretch. Still good. Still like everything's fine. I just haven't loved just haven't loved it. Um their their starting the version of their starting five with Horford and Porzingis's place is minus five in 215 minutes. It just hasn't played well and Porzingis feels just so essential to their team. And I'm just gonna read you I know everyone thinks I'm obsessed with this. Here is their um shot percentage of shot attempts at the rim in their last I don't know, 12, 15 games since January 10th. So cleaning the glass will track X percentage of your shot attempts in this particular game came in the restricted area. Here's where that percentage would rank on a 0 to 100 percentile scale among all teams in all games in the NBA. Do you want me to just rattle off their percentile scales from January 10th till today in order? Percentage of shots at the rim? Starting January 10th against Minnesota, 5th percentile. 25th percentile, 7th percentile, 9th percentile, 13th percentile, 8th percentile, that's the Denver loss, 19th percentile, 38th percentile, wow, 16th percentile, 26th percentile, that's the Clippers loss, their last three games, 10th percentile, 6th percentile, 9th percentile. I'm Uh sorry to keep harping on this. It's not a crisis, but it's a thing. They do shoot too many threes. They do not get to the rim enough. I know some people within their team would say, well, when we get to the rim and we miss, it's a jailbreak going to the other end. With threes, we can set our defense. The math says this. The math says you're amazing. And you are amazing. I I am not sitting here advocating that the Boston Celtics turn into like the 1994 Knicks. I'm just saying those numbers I just read are problematic. And they suggest that a 10% shift of your philosophy, a 5% shift, a 10% shift, a small but noticeable shift is necessary because they had seven free throws last night. They don't get to the line a lot. They don't offensive rebound a lot. They are just too dependent on threes. And maybe this is just the malaise of like, all right, we're awesome. We're good. We're going to take the easier way out in some of these games. But those numbers, it's just ice cold blue up and down those numbers for cleaning the glass. And it's just something I'm monitoring. They're down to like 28th for the season in percentage of shot attempts at the rim. It's too low. It needs to get higher. End Celtics analysis. Okay, Chris Herring, can you tell us about the story you have coming out on the Knicks this week? Sure. Well, uh, you know me, and I think a lot of your listeners that um, that I've count myself fortunate to have as, as readers as well read my work enough know that i i try when i can to take counterintuitive stances with stories uh you know to write about uh why players shoes fall off to write about Embiid and how often he falls and why he falls to write about uh why players lie about how tall they are what have you so i've always tried to do stories that are offbeat quirky and whatnot um so you know, shortly after the Knicks picked up OG Ananobi, uh, I think we all were intrigued by how much better they looked off the bat uh, following that trade. And obviously with OG, the, the thing that jumps off the screen to you watching him, whether he's a Raptor or Nick, whatever, is is his defense. He's a really, really good all-around player, but he's a superstar defensively, a superstar wing, 7'2 wingspan, despite being six foot seven height-wise. Uh, 
so in light of that, I was really intrigued by the idea of just what does their offense look like with him? Because we know what you're getting defensively. We know that, you know, if Tom Thibodeau was celebrating Christmas, that OG Ananobi is what he would ask for for Christmas. You know, this is on uh, my list to Santa. I wanted this from Sa- Santa. Give me OG. I hate you so much for having used that voice just now, but thank you for that. I don't leave any carrots for the reindeer. The reindeer could eat somewhere else. <laughs> I I really hate you, Zach. Um, man, I, I need to compose myself now. Uh, th- this was this is his whole wish list. Is somebody like this who plays like this who good or bad can play 42 minutes a game and you know we could have a longer conversation about whether that is bad in a lot of ways because og has now missed three games in a row but uh luol dang averaged 42 minutes a game chris did you ever look up did you ever look up how many minutes robert Parrish played i i have not recently but i could imagine that those numbers probably look very similar to those mid 2010 bulls teams and taj gibson and luol and everybody else please go i'm sorry you're completely fine. Uh, By the way, it might, be the, might be the front runner for coach of the year. Tom Thibodeau, you want to win basketball games? Hire Tom He's Thibodeau to coach your team. Butt off this year and uh, it's been fantastic. I say all that to say that I, I was really intrigued by offensively how they looked. And if you just look at the raw, I guess not raw, but the efficiency totals, the Knicks have been fine on offense, but there are reasons for that. When it's been OG and their two other main guys, Brunson and Randall, they've been historically great offensively they they would have the highest offensive efficiency in the league which is interesting because when their big three before that or at least their big three scores randall brunson and barrett they were like 10 11 points worse per 100 possessions and so i took a counterintuitive view to basically say og and ob has transformed their offense uh since they traded for him and again they've been without him the last couple games but that was what i wanted to look at i I felt like i found a decent amount of evidence to kind of support it that's the story i wrote it's it's a great story and it reminded me when you were talking about the bulls without levine how all these other guys are elevated and and prove they can do it now not everybody can do that and sometimes that peters out once you're higher on the scouting report but you have a great you have a great section in there about how there were these not even subtle comments from josh hart and Quentin Grimes earlier in the season about how like, yeah, we're kind of, the ball's not moving. We're not touching the ball enough. It's hard to get into rhythm. And, and I didn't really like, they were semi alarming, but I'm like, these guys are role players. Like they're touching the ball is about as much as I want them to touch the ball. Ideally, but you pointed out something very smart in the story that in Brunson and Randall, the Knicks have two guys who hold the ball a lot and they should particularly Brunson, who is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. We'll talk about him in a second. And Barrett was a third guy who, to his credit, I think, adapted as best he could to the role that the Knicks needed to play, but ultimately also wants to have the ball and drive the ball a lot, and is pretty good at it. And substituting Barrett out, now they lost quickly too, which we'll talk about, for a guy who is essentially, I don't think he's happy to just be a spot-up shooter, but understands that's what he's good at, and Tibbs is going to have him do that. And yeah, you can cook here and there against mismatches. It democratized the offense in a way that I think if you have two guys who soak up so many possessions, it's ultimately better for the offense to just have two of them and not three. And it, and it and it has got them moving. And to your point, Chris, they are now for the season. First of all, they're third in the East. And this race for two to five in the East is very, very frothy. Half a game back um, a second for right now. Yeah. Um, they're seventh in offense for the season. 
sixth in defense for the season, fourth in net rating, and they're about to catch the Sixers for third if the Sixers fall off a little bit with them beat out. This team just is awesome. And like I'm watching that game last night. I couldn't go to the Garden last night. I wish that I had been there. Mike Me Breen with one, of the, with one of the great calls of his life. And I mean that. I'm not being hyperbolic. Jalen Brunson hits a mid-ranger to complete a comeback that was like slow, 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 slow. And they finally got over the hump. And then he put him up by like five, I think, with like another crazy basket. Indiana calls timeout. And Mike Breen, the crowd is going bonkers because they just love this team. They love Brunson. They love what he stands for. They love that he was second-round pick. Um, Dallas decided, you know, we're not going to pay him this much money. And he's proved all the doubters wrong. That's such a New York thing. Crowd's going crazy. And Mike Breen, shot goes in. Jalen Brunson, boring to play basketball. And it was just this Mm. perfect little succinct encapsulation of not only who Brunson is, which is like this crafty footwork. He covers so much space on these up and unders and step throughs. He's all of a sudden like wide open just based on pivot moves. Just a crafty old school basketball soul, son of a player, son of a coach, all of that. Um, and his own exuberance, Mike Breen, as someone who's been around the Knicks his entire life, yeah. at feeling like, I can't believe how good this goddamn team is without Randall, without Ananobi, without Mitchell Robinson, Precious Achua and Isaiah Hartenstein getting every rebound. They had 24 offensive rebounds in the game. This has been a long-time safe space for Precious Achua believers, by the way. Um, Josh Hart <laughs> just taking the ball down your throat. Every every chance he gets it. Dante DiVincenzo. Man. Just like. He didn't even shooting. shoot well last night, but that's not the point. He shot. Yeah, I think he was like three of 13 from three or four of 14. He just is shooting a million threes and making them. 15 plus in the last three games each. Each. They'll use him as a screener in the pick and roll. And they'll use him as a ball handler now because they do feel the void of quickly, I think. And, and he's living up to it. And just the Villanova thing. This team is really, really good. And look, you can sit here and tell me, well, they're a piece away from being a true title contender. They're saving their powder for a superstar. That's cool. Like, as it is, they're really good. And I've said all year we could wake up and see this team in the conference finals. And the chances of that go up precipitously if they can get into the 2-3 side of the bracket and avoid Boston, who I still think is the best team. And they're right there. And... They are not done. Like, I don't know what they're going to do at the trade deadline. I think some of the noise about them has been uh, a little um, a little overblown, but I think they're going to look around. They do. They are cognizant of we have all these picks and we do want to save them for if a real true superstar becomes available. Um, but they have a, a superstar on their team. Jalen Brunson is a superstar. He should have started the All-Star game. I've been saying that for months. He was, he's been way better than Damian Lillard. When you factor in minutes, I think he deserved it over Donovan Mitchell. Um, what do you think this team's approach is going to be in the next five days? It, I, I still, and I, it's crazy because I've come down off this a little bit, but I still think it. I think that they need another playmaker. You alluded to quickly. I, I think that we're finding now that because of how Ananobi democratized their offense, that it was more painful for them to lose him than it was Barrett. And also the value around the league, there's no question would have been higher for quickly than Barrett. 
because of Quickly's potential, the fact that he was a guy coming off the bench, and when you extend him out to 35 minutes, what his numbers could look like, and the fact that he's a, a long, good defender. Um, and that's the way it's played out so far, where the reason the Knicks as a whole, I remember when I was going to write this story, the first question my editors asked me is, how have the Knicks rated offensively since they got Ananobi, if you're writing a story about how their offense you know, has hit new levels? The offense hasn't been head and shoulders better than it was before, but here's the reason. Quickly had their bench lineup scoring a lot of points. Uh, plugging Ananobi in for Barrett in the starting lineup has done wonders for their starting group, but now their bench has taken a hit. And so they've got these awkward lineups out there where you really don't have any natural playmakers in the second unit. It's been McBride, Deuce McBride. Ananobi is out there kind of handling the ball second most out of everybody, like Hart, Grimes, uh, Precious Achua. Like, it's these weird lineups that uh, – and, and shout out to to Fred uh, Katz, who I think he was the one that told me. I had not looked it up for myself. But on cleaning the glass, he was like, it's the funniest thing because offensively that group that I just mentioned is like in the zeroth percentile on offense, but they're in the hundredth percentile on defense. So they're still winning those minutes, but they're not scoring anything. Uh, so that can't continue. Now it, it, it pains me a little bit to say that you have to upgrade the point guard spot or a playmaker spot with that second unit because Deuce McBride has been playing really, really well. For him, by his standards, he's been shooting the crap out of the ball. I think he's like 45, 46% from three. Obviously, I'm not on the biggest volume, but he's been taking more of them lately, and he's been legitimately good, and he is a good defender. He is a guy that you would want to continue to develop. But when you're talking about a team where you think that there's a glimmer, there's a shot, obviously, if you're a two-seed, there's a shot, you could win a title. If, if things break the right way, if you make the conference finals, anything could happen. And I think it was Zach Cram in the ringer yesterday had a story about the fact that mentioning that the Knicks, each time they've had uh, a, a rating this high, an SRS rating this high, uh, historically, they've made the conference finals. So this is a very good team. I, I think you have to throw out a lot of the data that existed about them previously in the season because, Zach, they had the biggest single-month turnaround, arguably, in NBA history. Uh, they had the worst defense in the league over the month of December. They had the best defense in the league over the month of January. They cut their points per game allowed by a quarter from that's 124 in, that, that's points insane. a game to 100. It was the biggest single-month defensive turnaround in NBA history, and we're talking about a net rating difference of 25 points per 100, swapping out Barrett for – I'm sorry, Ananobi for Barrett. So it, it is a fundamental – mentally different team and we're talking about a team that keep in mind we haven't mentioned this Mitchell Robinson is not played and we're not sure if he'll come back and the last couple games OG hasn't been there and the next couple weeks Randall won't be there so I think they need the upgrade offensively a, a second playmaker just a bench playmaker whether it's a Schroeder it's a Brogdon it's a, a Clarkson somebody a Sexton they need somebody there um and if you still kind of platoon that secondary role with, with McBride as you're trying to develop him. Great. But I think that it's also asking a lot of Brunson as wonderful as he has been as deserving as he is of the starting spot. And maybe at this point back in MVP conversations, it's asking too much of him. And I worry about that with Ananobi already of how many minutes he's been playing 
Randall is going to be coming back from an injury, hopefully at some point. Don't put too much on Brunson because of the season that he's having and the lack of scoring that you've got around him. Go get somebody else so that he can be healthy for the playoffs. And you mentioned all those guys. I think they'll look at all those guys. I think they're interested in Clarkson. I think they're interested. I don't I don't know like that they're over the over their heels interested, but I, I think they'll look at all those guys and just kind of play the pricing game. Like what what's the what ends up costing us the fewest draft assets or whatever. It is interesting to think and they have the Fournier thing, which is not quite a typical ticking time bomb because they can just keep him and use his team option and use him as an expiring in the summer or next year. Mm-hmm. But they'll try to do something because um, those minutes are a problem. It's interesting to think about, you know, when they re-signed Barrett, there was all this hoopla about finally, for the first time since Charlie Ward, <laughs> the Knicks yeah. have re-signed a first-round pick. And, you know, there's been some Quentin Grimes trade talk. I like Quentin Grimes. You know, I understand he's kind of he's kind of been – jumped by lots of people now in the rotation, notably DiVincenzo and Hart. Um, it would just, if if they were to move him, and he's a draft success story for them, kind of a low first-round pick, you're talking about Barrett, Quickly, Toppin, Grimes, all moved really almost either before their second contracts or in Barrett's case, like either before it kicks in or in the first year of it. I can't remember exactly where we are on his timetable. And normally you would think, well, oh, that's not a great... That's not a great sign for their like draft acumen, but that's that's not really the case here because if you look at what they've turned them into, they've turned them into Ananobi, who's twenty six years old or something right in their timetable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two second round picks that they got for Toppin. It's like, well, they're, they're so low on Toppin. Well, Toppin's just okay. I like how he showed out last night in the Garden. Was you knew he was going to. <laughs> um, but but moving Toppin freed up the salary slots for Hart and DiVincenzo, who are two guys, again, in that age, kind of young vet age curve that matches Brunson. And when you get a guy as good as Brunson and, frankly, as good as Randall, and they exceed your expectations at this level, you do kind of have to recalibrate your team. And they've done it yeah. without getting old, without getting without forking over any draft picks. And, yeah, you, you know, the homegrown guys you miss, and but they, they've done it in, in the right way um, for them. They're really good, man. I, I they're, It is... Just a, a delight watching them. They just beat the crap out of you all over the floor. Okay, that's Knicks. Um, read Chris's story. It's outstanding. It's got some great – the numbers that you have in there on Ananobi's defense are like are – like, I just laughed reading them how grotesquely bad they are for the players that he's guarding. Um, if he stays healthy and, and or stayed healthy – the Ananobi defensive player of the year noise was going to start to build up as Minnesota kind of comes back to the pack a little, not back to the pack, but they're not like lapping the field anymore. I can okay. already hear Raptors fans from here and how annoyed they're going to be frustrated. They're going to be if, and when he gets, you know, if he ends up being a finalist for that award, once he's in a, a bigger, and I'm using air quotes because I understand Toronto is a massive city, but a bigger market a, an American market that gets more attention um, but I mean, it's, I, I also think there's something to be said for when someone switches teams and fundamentally changes a team's season to this extent, it's also just going to get a lot of attention. And, uh, I, I think it's well-deserved. I, it's insane to watch the way he's defended and how much he's changed that team this quickly, but it's also insane to see how hard they play without him too. And I, I, I think the props that you gave to Tom Thibodeau were well-deserved as well. All right, let's go rapid fire through some of our other most interesting trade teams. I asked you to pick five, but we've already really covered the Lakers, the Knicks, 
some Celtics talk. The Hawks, we we hit on with Murray, but I I think there's they just have a lot of guys. Like there's there's they a do. lot of teams. A lot of teams have asked me. Like Bogdanovich has gotten a lot of attention, but a lot of teams have asked me about Sadiq Bay. Is he available? He's Capella. a restricted free agent. Capella, like well, they, and and they've got some big decisions to make. Um, give me a give me your give me give me a team. I can't stop thinking about the Kings. Honestly, um, they're on my list. I mean, you 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 talk about a team that. Um, when you talk about, for instance, I was thinking about them a lot when you're mentioning the Lakers and how they're not going to reach the top six. Like it, it, it would be really difficult for them to do that. Um, the Kings are within that range, and you know we we talked about the Thunder and the idea of them in Minnesota and like what does it mean for teams that are seated this high but haven't been here before? Well, that was the Kings last year, and so the Kings are going to be a repeat playoff team, assuming that they can hold on. Uh, even though, as you said, they've been scraping by the skin of their teeth, basically. But it's a team now that you're hoping to make this a regular thing, that you want to stay in this conversation, that it was a team that also didn't change much about their rotation from last year, when I know a lot of people in their fan base desperately wanted them to try to upgrade on Harrison Barnes. So, you know, Harrison Barnes has been whatever this year. The irony is that it's actually been Herter that really hasn't been great Davion Mitchell has not necessarily panned out the way that you would have hoped and, and developed the way you would have hoped. Uh, but you still need some defense and you still probably want to expand what you're doing on offense. Quite frankly, you're an offense that thrives on having shooters and spacing and chaos all over the court. You also have to be careful with the fact that you've got a really rapidly developing, in my opinion, Keegan Murray, uh, where you don't want to necessarily, uh, shut off access to the oxygen that he has in his development. And so, you know, it, it's interesting just when I think about teams that make sense for certain players, like if you could turn up the sliders on Zach Levine's defense, like ever so slightly uh, with a team like that, to just to give them the shooting that maybe somebody like Herter has and the, and the bulk creation and the playmaking that he has, man, I would love that again. That's if you could do that. But even if you can't, you just feel like they need an infusion of something. You hear Kuzma's name a lot with them. And I like I like Kuzma. I think he deserves more credit than he's gotten. I also would be really, really, really scared just with the level of basketball that's been played there to like try to plug him into a situation where I'm trying to convince more people to care and play harder defensively to take someone from that team and plug them in. But I anyway. Nonetheless, just to talk about teams that I think really could use something, really need something, the Kings are at the top of that list because I think they just desperately need something. I, I thought even going into the season that they – well, I'm not going to say they rested on anything. I think it was more them wanting to maintain the continuity that they'd had uh, for a team that had been really good at a time where a lot of other teams in the West were changing things out. But I think they need something. You know – I I wanted them. I suggested Grant Williams for them over the summer over Harrison Barnes, mm -hmm. and Harrison Barnes has outplayed Grant Williams. Grant Williams has not played well so far in Dallas. Now I, I still have faith that he'll turn that around. But they've won four out of five. The Kings. They have three more road games, including now they're in Indiana tonight, and then Chicago, Cleveland, before they go home again. That this little stretch has kind of stabilized them, at, at giving them a little cushion. And, and although you don't want to overreact to a little stretch like that, my bigger fear for the Kings was that they would overreact the other way and make a panic trade 
um, mm. for a third guy like the, some of the guys you're mentioning and expend a lot of valuable draft assets and cap flexibility to do it when they're pretty good for a team that sucked for 20 years. They should be fine being pretty good. Keegan Murray is emerging as, I don't want to put like too low of a ceiling on him. Like if you told me Keegan Murray makes an all-star team in the next four years, I wouldn't be like shocked. Not surprised been, at all. He's yeah. been that good. Yeah. Um, I've never loved the Levine fit there defensively. Offensively, in theory, it makes sense defensively. And, and just, I think in dabbling around the edges of Anunoby and dabbling around the edges of Pascal Siakam and ultimately not getting deals done for those players for whatever reasons you want to ascribe to it, I think the Kings have showed you <clears throat> we're going to be careful with our cap sheet going forward. Those guys are going to make massive salaries, maybe max salaries, maybe not. We'll see. We already have two guys that are earning about that level in Fox and Sabonis, neither of whom made the All-Star team last night. Um, yeah, we got to be that. very careful adding a third one, which is why Kuzma, I've always had a soft spot for Kuzma. I think he can play solid defense when he wants to be and be a decent ball mover. He's had some high assist games this, this year. He's a good cutter. He's a good rebounder. His contract is in the 20s, and it declines over year over year, and it's four years long. That's a good contract. That's cost-controlled. That's one that if you pair him with – and age-wise, if you pair him with Fox, Sabonis, Murray, uh, and him, that makes some sense to me depending on what the cost is. I like that the Kings appear to be being careful – and just being like, you know what, we're, we're not going to do this thing where it's like, because we got to the playoffs last year and got to game seven, we have to win a round this year. It's Jenga. You don't want the whole thing to fall down. Well, and I and get also, it. Like, you're just not as good as those teams above you in the standings. Like, Don't sure. go all out to try to beat the Clippers in the first round because it's not going to happen um, it, without some health luck. All right, I'm going to pick a team. You ready? Please. Oklahoma City. I had him on my list too, so I'm actually out of all five of my teams already. That's great. That's fine. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oklahoma City. The intel, much as they would probably like it to be, is just all over the place on Oklahoma City. I've had people. <laughs> I've had people tell me, based on our conversations, we think they're going to be aggressive. Maybe I don't know. It's hard to tell. And I've had other people tell me, based on our conversations. They're probably going to stand pat and do the thing where they stand pat and just let it ride in the playoffs. And they do want to see mm -hmm. what this team looks like in the playoffs. It's a young team. They do want to see how Josh Giddy reacts to playoff defense, even how Lou Dort reacts to playoff defense as teams have kind of let him have a little more space. See how Shea's foul drawing translates to the playoffs. I, I, you know, I, th I think it will mostly, but we've seen guys who get to the line a lot not get there as much in the playoffs. Just see how they react. Um, on the other hand, they have 9 million draft picks. <laughs> and I do think, you know, there's a debate about this that I've had with people in other front offices. Like I've mentioned, I've mentioned all the names for them, all the names, the Nets guys, PJ Washington, Caruso, on and on. I've mentioned all the names. And, and some people will, will, will push back and say, are those guys playing over anyone in their top eight? And if you consider their top eight to be their starting five, plus Isaiah Joe, plus Kenrich Williams, plus Kaysan Wallace, and then Aaron Wiggins and whoever below that, it is a high bar. I do, however, think that some of those guys would play over those guys for various reasons. Like, we're going to see the degree to which Josh Giddy can survive in the playoffs. We're going to see how these young guys do in the playoffs. We're going to see if they need more size. And that's why I've liked Finney Smith for them, and I've liked P.J. Washington for them, and guys like that. Um 
And at the top of the league, and this is an interesting question for Denver, for Boston, who I think is looking around for depth, particularly on the front line, for Minnesota, who I think is a little at least cognizant that its offense has been wobbly, for the Bucks, who's who have very little to trade, but their bench, I mean, their bench, they have their four-man bench right now is campaign, Bobby Portis, who's fine. He's not been as good this year, but it's fine. Jay Crowder, who's fine, but recovering from injury. And Pat Connaughton, who just hasn't been the player that I hoped he would be this year and that they hoped he would be. That's not really a great bench right now. And they're not playing Beauchamp and they're not playing Jackson Jr. All of these teams, when you ask the question of like, well, are we getting a guy who plays above our eighth or ninth guy? Like Boston, are we, are we trading? If we trade for somebody, are they better than Luke Cornett, who we really like? Are they better than Sam Hauser, who we really like? Are they better than Peyton Pritchard, who we really like? Those guys are going to be on the team. Are they going to be able to play over them? It's a fair question. I do think once you get into the territory that these teams are in, the lofty territory, a question that is not asked enough by people like us in our jobs, but is asked by those teams is, are we so good that we should go out and get another guy, even if they might not make our regular rotation? Because we Mm. need to start planning for the scenario of if Drew Holiday sprains his ankle in the second round and is out five games, this guy can then escalate minutes. If we run into a matchup that's problematic for Luke Cornett, this more athletic, faster, switchier big can plug and play. And so I think that line of thought is too often dismissed. Like, yeah, Dorian Finney-Smith may not be a huge upgrade over Ken Rich Williams if he's an upgrade, whatever. But one ankle sprain and all of a sudden that dude's playing 28 minutes in a playoff game. I want them to do something so badly that I am like trying to will it into existence. Chris, they have 20 second round picks they can trade. I joked with Andrew. I joked with Andrew Select of The Athletic yesterday that they should just call the Nets and be like, we'll give you two first round picks and 20 second round picks for Mikhail Bridges. Like, he's a level, a tier above all these other guys I'm mentioning, obviously. So it's like, you can have all the second round picks. It was kind of a joke, but. I want them to do something, and that's why I want them to do something. And I, I, it could be anybody. Everybody wants them to get get a big rim protector to put next to Chet, get a big burly rebounder guy, and sure, that would help. I do think people are – like Capella is mentioned for them, right? Like a guy like that. Yeah. Uh, I like Wendell Carter Jr. better as a fit for them. I do too. But exactly. I think, peop- I think those people are underestimating like how much mileage they've gotten – out of having a spacing five on the floor at all times in check. Exactly. That was and my how, thought too. And how big of a sea change it would be with 30 games left in the season to introduce a totally different archetype of player. But damn it, Chris, I want them to do something. Well, in light of what you said, first of all, you just brought back a, a flood of memories of when I – my favorite game as a kid, it was not the – the disc version of it. It was the CD-ROM version of Oregon Trail. I think it was Oregon Trail 2 on my computer where people could talk to you. Then you were actually looking at images of people talking to you with really bad, like their mouths were moving, but it wasn't See, my Oregon Trail audio. was just like Zach has died of snake bite. And that was just like a little like no. a little sentence. That's it. Mine was great because you could have like fires. You could, I mean, your boat could topple over, but it was like, it was CD. So it was actually, you're watching the stuff happen and it was kind of cool. People could rob you. It was kind of scary too. Sometimes, but I say all that to say that you would get people, you would desperately need some food and they would essentially (laughs) bleed you 
of everything you had. And so the trades were mad lopsided. And you saying 20 second round picks just made me think about that. I didn't know where that was going either. Anyway, I say all that to say that, yeah, the, the names that I've got for Oklahoma City that I think about, like who knows what the Pistons are going to do because they desperately need, you would think, to avoid the wrong kind of history. But they've also got pieces that would be interesting to other teams if they're willing to give them up, if there's something being offered up that makes sense for the Pistons to take. I think Isaiah Stewart, he's not a veteran. Uh, and so from that standpoint, maybe you're looking at veteran talent that can help you and that has been there, done that. But like he would be a really interesting name from the standpoint of like we want someone that can rebound, but we also want someone that's not foreign to the idea of being out on the perimeter. Kelly Olenek is another name that makes a lot of sense, I think, for a team like that. Um, but I'm Andrew, right there Andrew with brought, you. Where, Andrew brought him up yesterday. It's interesting. They're going to have a lot yeah. of suitors for Kelly Olenek. Drummond doesn't – like a Drummond doesn't really – I'm not going to say it doesn't make sense because I understand the logic, but I, I agree with you, and that was foremost in my mind too, that just I don't – want them to completely change up what's been successful for them. This is a team that has as much shooting as really anybody. One of the best jump shooting teams that we've seen in recent history. So the idea of bringing their offense in more uh, doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't make sense if you're not actually bringing in guys that have shooting ability of their own, but I desperately want them to do something I don't think it's going to be the massive splash that so many people think about because they've no, got so many picks, have, but they don't. I, I've been on this all year. Just get another guy. It doesn't have to be a big tinker guy. Tinker around the edges. Guy. Tinker around the edges. Because so I, this I, I'm team is, to seeing them do that. This team is good enough. They've proven themselves good enough. Even when they wobble a little bit, like they lose two in L.A., Clippers, Lakers, they go back and they win in Minnesota. They win in Utah. They just seem to bounce back. They're tough. They beat Boston. They beat Denver. Um, they beat him without Jokic the other night, so throw that one in the garbage. <clears throat> and and Shea is of that age and ability where, like, if he wants help, and I'm not saying he would or should or could or will ever verbalize that, like, hey, get me another guy. He doesn't seem like he would do that. But, like, if he ever did, he deserves it. He's earned it. He's waited there a long time, and this is a, this is a team that deserves a shot and can do real damage in the playoffs. I mentioned Minnesota. I would keep an eye on Kyle Anderson's contract just for financial terms. If they want another guard that's actually good, you know, people have mentioned Tyus Jones for them. The only way to get there salary-wise, really, is Kyle Anderson. Uh, Denver's bench is worth monitoring, too. It's interesting because I think they want to give those guys some leg room to stretch themselves and figure out what they have. Uh, mm -hmm. And when Jokic is on the floor, it doesn't even really matter who's playing with him. He's so good. Um, Hawks, we mentioned. A team that I got my eye on... Uh, Something just feels a little fishy in Brooklyn. I think I think they've they've underperformed. Um, they've they've relatively underperformed. They have this Ben Simmons thing that he comes back and then he's out again. They have the yeah. Cam Thomas thing where he's he's can score the hell out of it and has passed it more lately. His assists are up, um, but that that has changed the fabric of their team, I think, and and changed everybody's roles when he's on the floor. They have O'Neal and Royce O'Neal and Finney Smith sitting there. You know, will the prices that they ask for on those guys come down as we get closer to the trade deadline? I think they're both good. Just something doesn't feel right there. I've got my eye on them. A team that I'm interested in too is Orlando. Like we haven't talked about them at all, but they're they're it's a team that, again, when we talk about teams that are not used to being in the playoffs, or at least recently, they're right there. I know they started the season hotter than what they've been relatively lately. But they have a couple pieces that 
aren't getting as much uh, go and aren't getting as much playing time, but that I think would be meaningful pieces or could be meaningful pieces elsewhere. And we talk about a guy like a Gary Harris, a Markel Fultz, and it's a team that doesn't shoot many threes that could use more of that. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued to see what they do because what they do could dictate the back end a little bit of the Eastern conference playoff race. Well, look, I mean, they're 25 and 23. The heat finally ended their win streak. The losing streak the other night. They're mm-hmm. tied with the heat. They're a game out of sixth. Now, if you want to tell me that, okay, the heat just got Terry Rozier at some point, they'll get a rhythm. He'll get a rhythm. They'll get a rhythm. Butler looks much more like himself in the last 10 days than he did before. Yes. <clears throat> the Pacers are, integrating Siakam and Halliburton together. They'll get better. They'll catch a rhythm. They'll put some distance between themselves and the Magic. This dream of the Magic getting into the sixth seed might just be a pipe dream. Maybe. Right now, they're right there. And if you can get out of the play-in tournament, you should try to get out of the play-in tournament and get into the top six. They need guards. They just need guards. They need guards. Like, the Anthony Black thing was cool. He's coming off the bench now. He does fine coming off the bench. Fultz's injuries are they seem to come and go teams still don't guard him anywhere you know from 12 feet and out Cole Anthony's really good he's coming off the bench um I they just need guards and I don't know again the the lack of names that really move the needle is is something worth considering and maybe the safest thing for them to do is stamp at they're interesting New Orleans is a total mystery to me New Orleans complete Mm -hmm. complete blank slate I have no idea what they're going to do well, I I shouldn't say that. I don't think they're going to sell. I think they're in try to improve the team for sure mode. Um, How do you do it? Yeah. Um, but the, it, it, they would love some rim protection. They would love some more shooting. Those are obvious sort of weak spots on their team. But they have guys who can shoot coming off the bench. It's just a matter of like how often can we play them? How much do we take away from our defense playing them? Um, I just I just don't know if there's anybody that's really worth them splurging a lot of their good assets for, but they have stuff. They have stuff. I think the Clippers are going to keep looking around. Speaking of like, can we just get one more guy to get one more guy? I think that yeah. they still have, they still have a pick to trade. Um, although every time they play Amir coffee is their sort of emergency ninth guy. It's like, Oh, Amir coffee's doing stuff. He's good. Right. Speaks a lot to the system that they've got right now. I mean, I, I'm thinking a lot, like I've, I've got all these teams listed in front of me. I'm, Thinking more about what you were saying about Boston earlier, I, I I think that the shot profile is probably the most sensible thing to pay attention to with them. But there is a part of me, particularly I know last night, I think made three games and four nights for them. I know that stuff has been trending a certain way for them. There is a, at least a part of me, I don't know how big a part, that wonders, is this just a team that really desperately needs to get to the break? Um, it, is it a team that similar to... Denver last year when granted their their portion of that season came later, but where they were just so far out in front of the rest of their competition to some extent that we all kind of were like, what's wrong with them? Uh, so it, it, it just makes me intrigued again to see if Boston makes a move, what exactly do they do? They could use a little bit more depth here and there. Um, but I there is a part of me that wonders what their struggles lately. Sure, I think all of us would love to see them go to the rim a little bit more just to diversify stuff a little bit more, have a little bit more variety. But there is also a part of me that wonders, are, are they a little bit bored? And do they get a little bit bored at times? If they were, it'd be understandable, even if it's not what you really want to see. I think Phoenix will look for, I mean, they don't have much of anything to trade. Interesting little Phoenix tidbit that's not relevant anymore. 
um, that's not even close to relevant anymore, but it's just interesting. They were, I've learned this week, they were in talks with the Raptors last year on either, not both, but either Siakam or Ananobi before the Durant thing became viable for them and they wow. pivoted everything to the Durant thing, which you pivot wow. to Kevin Durant. But That's they were, I mean, I don't, I, I, let, let me be clear. I don't think the talks were like serious. I, I don't think they were going to end up with either of those guys, but it shows sort of the, the optionality that they had before they went this route. But I, I think clearly Toronto didn't trade those guys and I you don't think, think they, they go would for have. Bridges? You think they end up going for Bridges? And, uh, Miles, and, and Miles Bridges? That Sorry. is a, that's a yeah. situation. Um, that's a situation. That that's a that's a longer discussion that we don't have time for now. Before we go, I mentioned I mentioned um, earlier that I had circled the wagons after the hourglass tweet, and it came back to me from the appropriate wagons that uh, a LeBron James trade in the immediate future was unlikely to the point of impossibility. Uh, Brian Windhorst just spoke to Rich Paul, um, and some of the wagons I circled are clutch wagons. Let's say just say that. And Rich Paul went on the record with him and said LeBron won't be traded, and we aren't going. We aren't asking to be. So um, the wagons that I talked to yesterday, speaking of Oregon Trail, uh, were telling the truth, and now <laughs> bring the it full circle. Public. By the way, the most exciting moment of Oregon Trail was when you were hunting and a bear walked in, and you could you could get the bear. But in my version of Oregon Trail, the bear was the most meat. And the most valuable thing, and it was a it rare was. thing. It was a rare thing that would appear. Um, it was. You'll have to play right. my game someday so that you can see how cool it was. Because you can get Zach shot. Died of, you, Zach all died sorts of dysentery. Stuff. Zach you can get did, hurt you, going hunting. Do, it's crazy. Do you want to caulk or or whatever? Float. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> the wagon. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, Chris Herring, uh, read his story on the Knicks. Read everything he writes for us at ESPN. It's exciting to have him back. Thank you for spending time with us on this Friday morning, sir. Thanks for having me, Zach. I always appreciate you.